In the second half of this episode, we talk about the hashtag MeToo phenomenon, and we wanted to start um, this week with a trigger warning because we do discuss sexual assault and rape. All right, welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that will not hesitate to hex you. This week, we have Hope, Lindsay, and Laura. And last week, we had a couple of incredible guests, and we talked a lot about what life is like as a sex worker and how we can support sex workers. Um, This week, we're going to delve a little bit more into the theoretical end of things. And then for the second part of this episode, we'll be discussing the hashtag MeToo phenomenon. So when we planned out our episode last week, we originally had planned to do this theoretical discussion as part of that episode. But as we started going with the interviews, they were so interesting and we thought that the perspectives were so valuable that we didn't want to worry about cutting them off or watching the clock. So that's why... We're doing a part two this week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the ep- or the articles that we picked out last week to discuss was uh, Socialist Whores, What Did Karl Marx Think of Prostitutes, which was published by Slate. I thought it was really interesting because it was kind of an amalgamation of different quotes and perspectives that original socialist thinkers had written about sex work. Although I'm not entirely sure that the entire article was exactly right on a lot of its points. One of the first quotes that was uh, quoted in part in the article was by Papa Marx from uh, Private Property and Communism. He said, prostitution is only a specific expression of the general prostitution of the laborer. And since it is a relationship in which falls not the prostitute alone, but also the one who prostitutes, and the latter's abomination is still greater, the capitalist, etc., also comes under this head. We'll address the second half of this quote in our discussion of angles a little bit later. But the article says that this quote indicates that Marx wasn't a fan of sex work, which I think lacks nuance. Marx is literally calling all work prostitution here, uh, which indirectly, indirectly seems to address the idea that sex workers sell their bodies in some way that like coal miners or food service workers or teachers don't. Literally, yes, sex workers accept money for access to different body parts and different kinds of labor, but the same can be said for virtually every different variety of labor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sex workers don't sell their bodies, they sell a service. Sex workers don't walk away from their job any less whole after a long day of work than you or I do. Although I have had jobs where I felt like my entire soul was just depleted after work. Um, And most of those jobs are sales and food service. So uh, I don't think that it's fair to say that this quote indicates that Marx was opposed to sex work in particular. He was just opposed to the exploitation of the laborer in particular. And we already knew that. Totally. I think that the lack of nuance was a little startling in this, but I think as Marxists, we can have that perspective. I think some people like still are like just coming to Marx now. And so sometimes when I read stuff like this, I'm like, oh, okay. But really, I think we have to understand that Marx doesn't have a moral judgment on any specific type of labor. His moral judgments come from people being exploited for profit. I think that not a lot of people talk about this issue in the left in general because they aren't sure how to approach a topic that is so intensely stigmatized culturally. Like people don't know how 
to separate how like Puritan our culture has become or has been for a while from women's liberation, from general exploitation. Like people don't know how to have, I think, enough nuance in this topic. And I think what, what Lindsay was saying before about the idea of even selling your body, like selling body parts. One of our guests last week was talking about how laborers like construction workers or I'm even thinking like farmers, they are using their body. They are being intensely physically active in mm-hmm. this way um, that, is, that could also be considered uh, selling their body. So right. I definitely think that, you know, there's there's a lot that we could read into this that maybe Slate's not, I mean, maybe that's not their point, but that they're not quite getting into. Totally. Yeah. And as you both mentioned, um, and I agree with the idea that Marx defends sex work as the selling of a service. And I think the selling of an experience as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think that in societies where a person's sexuality is viewed as a depreciating asset, meaning like you're somehow tainted, less likely to marry, less valuable for sex, the more you do it, it maybe could be argued that sex work does more so equate to the selling of a person's body But absent this kind of bullshit morality intended to keep everyone in their place, it becomes the selling of a service or experience. I also think that because there is such gross wealth and equality under capitalism, there is also unequal access to sex services. And I think this might be problematic on a philosophical level, because if we believe that sex work can provide a valuable service that improves quality of life for people, and I do believe that, then maybe it's something more people should have access to. And that's kind of the bread and so, uh, roses part of socialism to me. Mm. Oh, totally. I actually, later in this article, and I, I didn't pick this out to talk about, but since you mentioned it, um, Marx does refer in um, the Communist Manifesto to prostitution as the complement of the bourgeois family. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, considering prostitution as strictly a bourgeois luxury does make it more problematic from a socialist perspective because obviously people who can't afford necessities aren't going to be spending their money on sex work that's strictly a luxury you know the roses in this bread and roses situation Mm -hmm. so yeah or it like creates a situation where people are doing that for very cheap um Mm -hmm. in in scenarios where women are generally put at risk like whether they're on the street or something so the safety barriers that can be put in place make it unattainable for people with lower incomes. And so when they're seeking sex work, they go towards more of these like dangerous routes, which make it dangerous, not only for the person seeking sex work, but also for the sex worker. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the idea of people, you know, having access to sex services. And, you know, even imagining if we if we broaden that as as kind of healthcare, you know, as emotional, Mm. mental, physical, support that we could be giving people and compensating the workers fairly too. So I know that's kind of like a high level way of looking at it, but it did occur to me that we can't argue that this is a a service or experience that can be beneficial unless we also argue that people should be able to use it if they need it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I hadn't even thought about that. Totally. Additionally, this article refers to an Engels quote from Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Um, And the passage refers to bourgeois marriage, uh, marriages of both Catholic and Protestant traditions. Catholic marriages being traditionally arranged by the parents and Protestant marriages being initially based in part on love between the parties, but both ultimately devolving into infidelity on the part of both the husband and the wife. 
So Engel says, in both cases, however, the marriage is conditioned by the class position of the parties and is to that extent always a marriage of convenience. In both cases, this marriage of convenience turns often enough into crassest prostitution, sometimes of both partners, but far more commonly of the woman who only differs from the ordinary courtesan in that she does not let out her body on piecework as a wage worker, but sells it once and for all into slavery. And of all marriages of convenience, Fourier's words hold true. As in grammar, two negatives make an affirmative. So in matrimonial, mora- in matrimonial morality, two prostitutions pass for our virtue. Oh, dang. (laughs) (laughs) So the article refers to this as kind of a slam on prostitution, but in a much realer way, it seems like a slam on marriage. Um, And particularly, you know, marriage of bourgeois couples who are essentially just preserving their accumulated wealth uh, through their bloodline. But there, there are two ways that I could see to read this. And the first was that, you know, prostitution's bad. Of course, like, essentially calling prostitution a vice. On the flip side of that coin, calling something generally held to be sacred, something that is generally considered a vice, is kind of cool and seems to be knocking the bouge down a level. Yeah. Uh, So, (laughs) to me, it seems a little bit like drill voice. There's actually zero difference between good and bad things, you imbecile, you fucking moron. Uh, But unironically, which I really appreciate. Yeah. So, while this take is kind of problematic uh, in that it seems to be attaching a negative value judgment on sex work and everything that singles out sex work in that way makes me cringe. I appreciate it on the level that it seems like a condemnation of the inequality of women in society and in marriage and, uh, you know, sexual power dynamics in general. I love the quote within that Angles passage that's like, the crassest prostitution in regards to marriage. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I can't tell if it's a dig at marriage or monogamy, but Angles is kind of a badass on this whole this whole thing. <laughs> I really appreciate the notion being raised that people are already benefiting from their sexuality in a real and very economic sense and that it's built into the system already with marriage and in fact has been a crucial part of women's survival historically since, you know, we've had limited or no ability to change our own economic situation historically. Mm. And kind of as an aside, I get so annoyed at the way people hate on gold diggers, but give men a pass for marrying young, conventionally attractive partners. Like, shallow is shallow, you know? Totally. And the, Absolutely. I, the idea that we despise so much more somebody who wants more, you know, stability... And there's even an argument to be made that at least if you're a gold digger, you know, maybe you want more stability for your family. Maybe you're trying to improve your own life. I don't see any of those Mm. merits to just like trying to find the youngest, most conventionally attractive partner possible. But we totally give people a pass. Well, and I think that that gets at this like larger theoretical, like cultural discussion that could be had about the acceptance of men's sexuality versus women's sexuality. Mm -hmm. And like there's like that. You know, like the fucking Hugh Hefner archetype where it's like this older dude who can have all these young, hot women and like society's totally okay with that somehow. Mm -hmm. But like if women were to do that same thing, it would like raise eyebrows and be, you know, this this unacceptable thing. Yeah, definitely. So there's... Another quote, which I believe is also Angles, uh, that says, Among women, prostitution degrades only the unfortunate ones who become its victims, and even these by no means to the extent commonly believed, but it degrades the character of the whole male world. Which I appreciate on some level, but I also find uh, problematic, because I can't tell if he means that 
only the unfortunate sex workers become victims of sex work or that only the unfortunate in general become victims of sex work. Mm. Um, which in comparison of the last half of the Marx quote that we led with, uh, which basically says that people who use the services of prostitutes are worse than prostitutes. I don't know. It seems pretty similar to that, you know, to me, like that the client's abomination is still greater. So I'm just, I'm curious if the assumption is that those who solicit sex workers exploit them and whether like Johns are the capitalists to the sex workers laborers. It seems to be like you said that in this passage, men in general are responsible for exploiting women's sexual labor because they hold power over them as a group, while Mm -hmm. women as a group are not to be blamed for what he's characterizing as their victimization. I do think that he may be saying it's particularly degrading work, and I think a gendered sense of degradation is setting this labor apart from other types of labor. So to be fair, that might have something to do with male power over women in this particular kind of labor. But the idea that one half of the population exerts domination over the other beyond all other differences seems a particularly brutal kind of exploitation, especially when you consider marriage as forcing women into lifelong domestic childbearing and sexual servitude. Hmm. In some contexts, most every woman in a society was or is expected to fulfill this obligation. Um, And there were all kinds of abuses stemming from misogyny and sexism and sex work, which are then amplified because sex workers are so disempowered, Um, even to the extent that it's harder to seek justice if assaulted by a client than it is for um, other women and even women in other jobs. So I guess in that way, men are degraded by sex work as it stands, but that's because all work is degrading under capitalism. Yeah, it's a this is a hard one for me to wrap my mind around, mostly because I feel like degradation as a term can take on so many different forms in this context. Mm -hmm. Like we've talked about before, yes, we know misogyny and sexism hurts everyone, but it does affect women on the whole more than men. Mm -hmm. Like I don't feel bad for men in this context, although I probably should. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't know if I feel bad for men in this context. Yeah, there's another quote in the Slate article called Socialist Horrors about prostitutes being only one iteration of labor exploitation, which the article uses to suggest that Marx thinks of the abolition of prostitution as a necessary part of ending capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be really hard and maybe even foolhardy to figure out what Marx and his contemporaries are saying about prostitutes, because the word is something they use as a metaphor a lot. Mm-hmm. And we ran into this with the word slavery on a previous episode. Um, and I think that they look for shock value and it makes it a little problematic to try to seriously interpret what they're saying about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And of course, like, Angles did refer to marriage as, you know, a woman selling herself into slavery. So we can see right. that metaphorical use of, you know slavery and prostitution for shock value once again. But Hope, you touched on the idea that sex workers are particularly disempowered as laborers with regard to assault um, in the line of work. And uh, so I did a little bit more, you know, research on that topic. And I found this excerpt from Unjust and Counterproductive, The Failure of Governments to Protect Sex Workers from Discrimination by uh, Linda Benock and 
Sue Metzenrath. I should have read those names out loud before we recorded. That sounded really good. Thanks. That could very well be their last names. But what they say is that an argument advanced for the failure to inadequately reform the sex industry regulations um, to ensure that sex workers have occupational conditions enjoyed by other service industries is that sex work is inherently exploitative and harmful to those who work in the sex industry. However, little, little consideration is given to how laws regulating the sex industry create the conditions for the exploitation of sex workers and contribute to the social and psychological harm of sex workers. Mm. So personally, like as someone who's fascinated by both true and fictional crime and the criminal justice system, this is a subject that I've put a lot of thought into. In the media that I consume, I frequently hear sex workers referred to as high-risk victims, which basically means that because of their lifestyle, sex workers are at an elevated risk of being victimized when compared to the general public. A lot of this has to do with the fact that sex work, specifically full-service sex work, is criminalized. Mm. So if a full-service sex worker is raped by a client, the police may not take the complaint seriously or even write a report at all, or they may decide to arrest the sex worker for being a sex worker. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's one way in which, like, sex workers are particularly disempowered. Like, they don't have recourse when it comes to situations in which they are victimized. Yeah, and I guess I just was thinking, because I'm kind of a data nerd, when we talk about... Data nerd. Totally. (laughs) uh, When we talk about high-risk victims, I think it's important to recognize that that's based on what what is seen, what does get reported, and not to say that certain kinds of sex workers aren't at higher risk, but there are definitely different layers of that risk. I think that, you know, different access to technology, you know, class, all kinds of things, what kind of sex work you're doing, all plays Mm -hmm. a role in the relative degree of risk that you have for victimization. That's not to say that we can't do better protecting sex workers, but I do think it's important in a broader discussion about destigmatizing sex work to not just always say, like, blanket anybody who's doing sex work is at a very high risk to being a victim. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Can you explain a little more, like, it seems like you're kind of describing a tiered system of safety. Mm-hmm. Like, can you give some examples, I guess? Of- yeah. So at the beginning of the last episode, um, Lindsay did a really amazing job of spelling out how there are different kinds of sex work. And a lot of things are included where people just assume that it's full service sex work or prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think even in our own conversation, it's important to clarify, like when we say, you know, I hear sex workers referred to as high risk victims. That's probably not a phone sex operator. Right. So that's kind of what I'm thinking of. But then also, you know, I like I have friends who do different kinds of sex work or sugaring and, you know, they I think they're at a relatively lower risk grade, not that they still don't have it than like a, you know, a trans full service sex worker, for example. And there's a lot of like economic and cultural reasons why that's true. Right. Mm. But I, I also think that people who do any sex work at all, whether it's like stripping or uh, acting in porn Mm-hmm. I think that the perception on a lot of, you know, people who would be sexual predators, I think that they perceive those people as not saying no, not being the kind of person who would reject a sexual advance. Right. And, you know, therefore not taking no for an answer if they mm-hmm. find themselves in a you know, position where they can take advantage um, of someone who does any kind of sex work, whether or not they are a client. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think, the belief that sex workers are always hypersexual and right. it's not just something that they do for a job and therefore like they're always going to be down like mm-hmm. i think that 
I think that there is definitely an elevated risk across the board for sex workers when compared to the general public, Um, Mm -hmm. but certainly full-service sex workers and particularly, you know, full-service sex workers who, like, work the corner, they're at, I would say, the highest risk of all. Um, And I think that statistics back that up, although I don't have any in front of me at the moment. Yeah, that makes sense. Citation needed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just teasing you because we just know this stuff. (laughs) True. I mean, that seems intuitive. Sorry. That's what I meant to say is it seems intuitive that 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 hierarchy exists. I just needed a little clarification. (laughs) Yeah. And I appreciate you guys letting me raise the point. I, I always just want to be careful that you know, I hear this the counter argument all the time from people who are like, oh, sex work should never be decriminalized. We should keep trying to get rid of it. It's always hurtful to sex workers. And so I guess mm. I'm just like very sensitive to defining terms and making sure yeah. we're clear. Like the sex worker is not like they're not the issue here. It's the people who aren't respecting boundaries or don't understand like that sex work is right. a job. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Exactly. And, and, and when we get into the me too conversation later, like the same could be said for this whole mm-hmm. fucking phenomenon. And we can, you know, I think bringing this back up then will be a good, a good thing. Yeah, awesome. totally. Thanks ladies. I think that, I don't know, kind of a continuation of this, that the stigma surrounding sex work is also sufficient to keep sex workers from reporting when they're pressing charges because obviously I mean I can't speak for for sex workers but it's not uncommon for sex workers to want to keep that work separate from the rest of their lives and I know that you know Mistress Velvet was telling us about this last week like she there are people that she does not want to know what she does and if you press charges you know and if it ever gets to a trial then you know your abuser is going to be you know it's going to be a public trial and uh it's it will likely come out what you do for a living. And then, you know, you're going to have to deal with not just the trauma of recovering from an assault. You're going to have mm-hmm. to deal with the trauma of facing your accuser and mm-hmm. also like the social blowback of dealing with your family and people and friends and colleagues and your employers who might not treat you very kindly if they find out that you're a sex worker. And totally. all of that, I mean, all of that is, is sufficient, I think, to, to keep the, the levels of reported sexual assaults and victimizations of sex workers mm-hmm. uh, much, much lower than they, they actually are. So all that said, I think that sex work is more dangerous because it is stigmatized and because it is criminalized. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. About to get real nerdy with y'all. Um, I recently read Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Crake trilogy. It's a dystopian fantasy series. So think about her book, The Handmaid's Tale, or, you know, the TV series, Handmaid's Tale. But it's different. In this book, in Orcs and Crake, the women who participate in sex work are some of the most heavily protected people in the community. Because the books all take place in the future, all of the women are be able, are able to wear this thing that goes over their entire skin, and it's also very breathable. It's called biofilm, and it protects them from getting any unwanted fluids on their bodies. Nice. So it essentially is like a second layer of skin that goes over your skin, and it's clear, um, but it protects you from disease or anything like that. Kind of like a full-body condom. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. (laughs) And then it additionally, it was legal for the women to drug men when they started to behave in a violent way. They could just drug the man's drink and he would fall asleep and not know whether or not a sexual encounter actually happened or not. And in fact, like they often, more often than not, would wake up the next day thinking that something did happen, which, you know, worked out in in both the 
the sex worker's favor and that person's favor. Um, and the women who worked in these places could focus on the performance aspect of their job, which most of them described as extremely rewarding and interesting. And all that to say is the women could do the parts they wanted to do and not the parts that they didn't and have the heavy protections in place so that they could be safe while they did this work. Like roofing is a dangerous job. Sex work doesn't need to be dangerous. It's only dangerous right now because there's not pr enough protections in place for the people who participate in this line of work. And I think like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like uh, novels can give us a lot of insight on at least dystopian fantasy in general. I'm a nerd like that. <laughs> I love it. I think that it's super poignant and Margaret Atwood really did a good job in this trilogy in particular. All right. Well, I guess there's, yeah, there's one last quote that I pulled out from the article Socialist Wars. And he, the author says that Lennon found sex work distasteful, which may be true. Uh, but Lennon also recognized that sex work will always exist under our wage system. In Lennon's words, no amount of moral indignation, hypocritical in 99 cases out of 100 about prostitution can do anything against this trade in female flesh so long as wage slavery exists. Inevitably, prostitution too will exist. Now, of course, we're all aware that not only women are sex workers. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, yeah, male sex workers. There are non-binary sex workers. However, I think it's overwhelmingly a, you know, female occupation and certainly in Lenin's time. So we're just going to roll with the quote. But essentially what he's saying that is that as long as people's livelihoods are contingent upon selling their labor, there will be people who will choose to or who have to sell their sexual and emotional labor. Um, mm. Under full communism, when everyone gets what they need without having to sell their labor, people might only have sex for fun or intimacy. And sex work might not be a thing. But as long as there's systematic inequality, not just economic inequality, but gender and racial inequality, sex work will continue to exist. Uh, so criminalizing it before correcting the issues that create the necessity for it in the first place will never bring an end to sex work. This is, uh, I feel like, a lot to unpack. But... First, I guess I wanted to argue with the idea that under full communism, everyone would get what they need without having to sell their labor and people might only have sex for fun or intimacy. Because I just think that requires a huge moral shift that I think mm -hmm. is even bigger than an economic shift. There are people, mm. you know, there are disabled people, older people who are like deemed less desirable by societal standards and they don't have equal access to the sexual experiences that they want or need and you know I just don't see that changing when even under these conditions you know um totally and then That's there's really like all of yeah there's all of the you know, uh, moral judgment about the kind of experiences people want to have. We know that human sexuality is extremely broad and it changes over a person's lifetime. And there may be experiences that it somehow makes them more comfortable to have it be somewhat transactional. And even if it were like a bartering or some kind of other relationship, I just don't think it, the idea that everybody is going to be having the like fun and intimate sex that they want that easily or quickly, I think is a little unrealistic. Mm. That's fair. And you kind of mentioned this earlier without, I don't know, being as direct about it. But it's clearly a perspective I haven't really thought about. And I, I think it's really important. Totally. Yeah. So, well, yeah. <laughs> and I guess it is really naive to think that under communism or under any structure, sex work will ever be fully eradicated. Yeah. 
Well, and I mean, that's why we're having these conversations, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think the question then becomes, like, is the goal sex work eradication? Because I feel like, especially after talking to our guests last week, I don't think that they would argue that that's what the goal is. The goal is for it to be legal and safe. Um, So, yeah, I'm not really sure. It's, I mean, to me, it's like a very pie-in-the-sky kind of vision, but we would have to have a society where a lot of things were destigmatized because there are, you know, sex is not a finite resource. There are a ton of people on the planet. Like there's not, shouldn't be any shortage of people having the kind of experiences, you know, with consent that they want. It's not, you know, it seems like, especially with the internet connecting people, it's something we could figure out, but we would have to sort of like change the whole sexual economy I think in order right. to avoid kind of the perception of scarcity on certain things or like what's valued more than others too, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's like a, a long, huge shift. So I think having the kind of conversations we're having are really important. The economic part of it is super important to think about. And then protecting and supporting people who are sex workers now and looking at the education part of it is also, I mean, I think those are good steps, you know? Absolutely. Totally. So the final article we're going to kind of dissect before we go to our music break is a Think Progress article. Uh, It's called Female Homicide Rate Dropped After Craigslist Launched Its Erotic Services Platform. And this article discusses how much safer it is for women to be involved in sex work when they have an online platform. After an erotic services platform was introduced on the widely used website Craigslist, a study done by West West Virginia University and Baylor University economics and information system experts found that a shocking 17% decrease in homicides with female victims after Craigslist erotic services were introduced. Um, And that's an extremely significant statistic. And kind of the background to that was they were using a different website called Redbook, which then became federally banned. And so Craigslist launched this. Um, But in between those times, one of the sex workers that they interviewed in the article said that she had to work on the street and she was beaten and raped several times. Um, And we can't, we like, we can't. That blew my mind just because it was not that long of a time that this woman had to work the street, but still, if we're going to condone the extreme levels of violence against women because, like, we as a society can't handle being sex positive, it's it's really mind-blowing to me. And even though it was just a small quote of her, and she kind of almost casually said that she was beaten and raped several times, and I just, it was, like, startling. And it goes back to what we were talking about before with how having such a puritanical society makes everything just a little bit more fucked up. A little bit. And, you know, what Hope was saying about how, like, the cultural shift may be even more challenging than the economic shift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The last line of this article really stuck out to me. The um, person who's being interviewed says uh, they tried everything they could to stop the heroin epidemic, but they couldn't. So why not pass out clean needles? which I think is a really, I think it's a pretty appropriate metaphor um, because attaching value judgments to things like sex work and drug use instead of accepting them as things that happen in real life uh, embedded in social and economic contests, contexts 
does nothing to end them. Both sex work and drug use are things that are risky, sure, uh, but they're only made more dangerous by efforts to do away with them directly. So if your goal is to minimize exploitation of sex workers, you should start by giving people other options, but also by making people safer within sex work. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of sex workers, of course, get involved in the life to develop economic independence from abusive partners or to pay for other necessities. A lot of people don't choose it for fun, just like a lot of people don't choose most jobs for fun. But some, some people, of course, find that they enjoy sex work and they, you know, make it their job, which I'm not condemning at all. Like, do you. It's, it's you know, necessary work in a lot of ways. Um, But if we do away with the concept of earning a living entirely and just give people a living, way fewer people will turn to sex work out of economic need. So, you know, again, I have no problem with sex work and I recognize that it can be empowering for some people. But if we want to reform the conditions of sex work, we need to look at the factors that lead people to choose it and address them so that no one is in any way coerced into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, in uh, conclusion... (laughs) along with this article, uh, fuck pimps. Yeah, fuck pimps. (laughs) Yeah, fuck pimps. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a short music break. This is Lead Me On by the Orlando-based band Claire and the Potatoes. Never gonna let me learn about you 
version of my mistakes It doesn't matter if you're not my type Or if I'm not really into guys Oh, well, I'm no prize Who could care less On my fantasies go I dream of having somewhere to go And something to do This past week, a whole bunch of women came out of the woodwork with the hashtag MeToo stories. It kind of was centered around Harry Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein, yeah. Harvey Weinstein. Fuck that guy. Mr. Fuckface. (laughs) (laughs) But I, and you know, of course, the original woman who started MeToo came out like 10 years ago, but this, there was just story after story after story for the past week. And for me, as someone who has experienced both harassment and assault, it was good to see people having catharsis about their experience, but it was also really triggering for me. Like Mm -hmm. I had to step away from social media. And in fact, I had completely buried one terrible memory of assault. It was completely just like hidden in my brain and it re- surfaced after reading these different conversations that women were having online. And it doesn't help at all that right now I'm dealing with a pretty severe sexual harassment case on my campus. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nevertheless, I'm trying to sort through the net positives and negatives of this whole campaign. And, and for me, the the question surrounding how positive can it be is me wondering, do we actually think that men do not understand how ubiquitous harassment is? Because I think the actual shameful thing is that everyone is actually aware of how prevalent it is and no one does anything about it. Like the shameful thing is that we as an entire society have essentially shrugged off the fact that women or generally anyone other than cis men are harassed on the daily. And that doesn't mean that cis men aren't harassed, but it's definitely less. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes like, what is the hashtag me too actually accomplishing if not making people aware of how prevalent the issue is. Yeah, and so I had an experience with this myself as, you know, it was kind of in the ether and people were having conversations on social media and in person about it. And I saw a friend of mine post that she had an experience where somebody had sex with her without a condom against her wishes, and she classified that as assault. And that made me really reflect on something that happened to me years ago, um, where the same thing happened. I was young, I was dating somebody who was much older. And it was traumatic for me at the time. It was really upsetting. I felt like he didn't care about me. It was kind of scary at the time. Mm -hmm. um, Because I felt like, you know, he was somebody that I trusted. And he wasn't nice about it after the fact either. But, you know, luckily, he evolved as a person. And after we finished up our dating relationship we stayed friends and we've been friends for years we have very good communication so I decided to send him a text and I just explained you know I'm thinking through this and I wanted to share with you that I now recognize that you assaulted me 
and we had an exchange about it. He was very receptive. He listened to what I had to say, asked how he could support me, apologized and acknowledged that he'd been going through a really bad time in his life and hurt a lot of people, I'm sure some worse than me. And we um, made loose plans to talk on the phone a little bit after that. Um, and then later that same day, like maybe an hour later, I got an email he sent out to me and CC'd a bunch of other people sharing his own story of a near assault experience when he was younger. And it was just so strange. And I'm still trying to unpack how I feel about all of this, because on the one hand, I am glad we're having these conversations and, you know, that it stirred up something for him to think through. But I also felt like it was a little reckless and selfish of him to even include me on the email. That's a conversation he could have had with somebody that was not me. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact- like, this, like this whole thing is not permission for people who have committed assault, harassment, or rape to redeem themselves somehow. This isn't the time for that. This isn't like, oh, yes, I'm realizing that I did all these things. Like, let me reconcile that in this moment. It's like, no, you just, we just need you to listen. It's what we've been asking for for this whole time and then just stop doing it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I'm also down for reparations. Like, yeah. if somebody wants to pay, like, if my abuser wants to pay for my therapy, like, I'll take that. But like, no aside from that, I don't think it's really appropriate for someone to take the focus off you when mm-hmm. you're telling them, hey, you did this really fucked up criminal shit to me and say, oh, yeah, well, it almost happened to me, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that, and I, that I understand really... that, you know, abuse creates abusers like that. That mm-hmm. cycle is well understood by I think most people and certainly by me. And it's not that it's not worthwhile for him to try to, you know, understand better what was going on with him, but he needs to do that. Not with me. He -hmm. needs to do that with a therapist or a partner or his family or not me. And the (laughs) the fact that he chose to like put what I think is more emotional labor on me to kind of like, you know, assuage his guilt or to make sure I didn't see him as a bad guy is really bothersome. Of course. And that's what I was just, you know, I, I was just thinking that, This, especially in light of what we talked about in the mental health episode, where most women's experience feels like a battleground, Mm -hmm. like walking out onto the street or, you know, just existing. And just because we're dealing with harassment and we're scared of assault, like I was walking my dad's dog yesterday, this dude pulls up next to me and stops his car and my whole body tenses up, of course. Mm -hmm. I look over and he's just friggin' texting on the side of the road. The thing is, we're trained to to exist in this very specific way. And then for for people to then expect us to do the emotional labor to heal society is Mm -hmm. just makes me want to vomit. Yeah. I'm not doing that shit for free. Like, go to a therapist and pay somebody to help you unpack this so you don't hurt any more people. Right. Right. In any case, it's not your job to help him feel better about what he did or about what True. was done to him. And it sucks. Like, it sucks that he has a Me Too story. I hate that for him. But mm-hmm. it was wrong of him to put it on you. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of the um the benefit and some of the um pitfalls of all of this coming up for people, because it does unearth things that have been dormant for a long time or you never really mm-hmm. knew was assault. And that's going to have kind of a ripple effect, I think. Mm-hmm. For sure. Absolutely. 
So I felt like I was like breathing fire. <laughs> this, I mean, I, it, it, I'm laughing. This is not a funny topic, but I'm laughing because it's people are, get this so wrong. They get it so wrong, and it's like really like yes, it is a complicated thing, but it's 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 not that complicated. Right. Like, it is complicated, but it's not that complicated. Um, there was an article that was really widely spread about what had been going on with Harvey Weinstein and, like, all of these actors coming out of the woodwork. And they described one actress, and she was raped by um, this stupid man. And they (laughs) describe it as, like, she described having horrible trauma and had trauma also for not fighting him off, which I think is also something that I've been hearing a lot of, of, of people kind of not only... Even people I know and respect are like, all these women are coming out of the woodwork. If we just had done this earlier, like this stuff wouldn't be happening. And I'm like, no, that's like, no. Again, that's putting the emotional labor back on people who have that, who are victimized in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, then this fucking article says she later, this is a quote. She later went on to have consensual sexual relations with him which she described to the magazine as one-sided and onanistic because she believed he would ruin her career if she didn't comply. God damn it. Jeez. It's like, this isn't... Okay, you think that that is consensual sex, you motherfucker? <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, no. If you are coerced into having sex because you think you will lose your job, that is rape. That is rape. It's like the fact that this widely, widely dispersed mainstream article about this issue went around describing that as consensual sex. I'm like, this is exactly the problem. The -hmm. fact that people in the United States think that this is consensual sex. Yeah, like if you're coercing someone... They're not consenting. That's not real consent. It looks like consent. It'll make it really hard for them to prosecute you. But that doesn't make it consensual. Right. Like, that's so not okay. (sighs) Yeah, okay. So this is a really commonly misunderstood. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's commonly misunderstood. People just don't think about it. Uh, Thing that can happen to people uh, that feels subjectively like sexual assault. And I don't know if it counts. Mm -hmm which fucking sucks, but my first boyfriend, the first time that I ever had sex, he was six years older than I was. Like, I had just graduated high school. He had just graduated college. Like, he had so much more experience than I did, and I deferred to him because I had never had, like, proper sex ed. I was like, you know what you're talking about. We're going to go with what you're saying. He wanted to have sex without a condom because he's like, it's your first time. You shouldn't have sex without a condom. I'm like, well, have you been... You shouldn't have sex with a condom, you mean? It's your first time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't have sex with a condom. Yes, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You shouldn't have sex with a condom. It's your first time. And I was like, well, have you been tested, like, since the last time you've slept with someone else? And he goes, yeah, of course. Like, we're good. Mm. He's like, came back negative. You know, everything's everything's good. I was like, all right, fine. Since you know what you're doing and I don't know anything. He told me a month later... That not only had he not been tested since his last partner, he had never been tested in his entire life. Oh, no. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, he was tested shortly thereafter and had nothing. But, like, I 
only agreed to have sex with him without a condom because of what he said, because he promised me that it was safe. So he was putting, he was putting a greater risk on me than I had consented to. But in my state, and I think in most states, like that wouldn't be considered rape from a legal perspective because I did consent to like penetration. Um, I agree with you that it's, it's really tricky when I was in a, you know, severely abusive, like mostly emotionally abusive, but to the point that I was like brainwashed into mm -hmm. thinking that I had done like terrible things to this person. And when you look back on even situations like that, where you are literally brainwashed, Mm -hmm. like how do you talk about brainwashing? That's a weird thing to talk about. But when you are literally brainwashed, you, you think things that aren't true because someone has put it so intensely into your brain. And you feel so scared, like you aren't allowed to do anything by yourself. You have so much paranoia. How can sex in that situation be consensual? Right. How mm-hmm. can how can that be anything other than a non-consensual way of having sex? Because, but again, like Lindsay was saying, that's not something that the law is going to come down on. Mm-hmm. That's not something that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, it's hard to talk about because, of course, like violent physical abuse that that isn't as coercive on a mental level is obviously very serious. But I think when we get into these coercive things where women think they're going to lose their jobs or they're going to even think they lose their partner and they're scared for that, um, they behave in certain ways or if there is some sort of mental control over them, they behave in certain ways. And when... When as a society are we going to realize like that is also not consensual and we need to have discussions surrounding these more nuanced forms of sexual assault? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that uh, it's pretty safe to say if you have to make someone feel unsafe in order to get them to say yes to having sex with you, if you have to threaten someone or threaten their job or... um, you know, someone they love, or if you have to lie to them in order to get them to have sex Mm -hmm. with you, that's not consensual. You should go to therapy and stop having sex with people until you figure that shit out. Mm -hmm. Therapy's great, y'all. Yeah, Jesus. It's so good. (laughs) Just uh, consent. Like, just have sex with people who want to have sex with you or pay someone. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Goes back to before. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I think um, finding ways to not be so selfish, you know, you, mm-hmm. it's not okay to violate somebody to get what you want. And mm-hmm. the, we can't minimize the amount of hurt that it causes. It's not right. like a, a victimless crime, you know, right. um, it's, it's hurtful on so many levels. And if it's somebody you don't know, it's hurtful on a, you know, wow, I thought you care about me as another human being and you don't. And when it's a partner or a friend, then it's like another layer on top of that. I thought you cared about me as a person in your circle, you know, as a person in your tribe mm-hmm. or as your partner and you don't. And the, the mm-hmm. weight of that, I think, cannot be overstated. Absolutely. This week has been pretty challenging for me. Um of course, because of like all the Me Too stuff going on on social media and people outing their abusers and people demanding that other people out their abusers. I've also been uh, in the like the rape component of my criminal law class. 
So mm. for school, I've been reading rape statutes and reading stories about people who were sexually assaulted. Um, and of course, like I've been reading much the same in my free time and it's been just emotionally grueling. Uh, mm. But one of the things that I think is the most challenging with rape from a criminal perspective is that the line between consensual sex and rape is literally just consent, which is a much thinner line than there are between other crimes. And it's really difficult to to prosecute on that basis. And um, as someone who's, you know, very adamantly opposed to the carceral state, I support, you know, Blackston's theory, which is essentially that um, it's better for um, 10 guilty men to escape than for one innocent man to suffer. Um, mm. And I, in most other situations, that makes sense and it resonates so hard with me. But like in terms of rape, there are so many other innocent people suffering besides mm -hmm. the criminal, uh, besides the rapist. And so that's just, it's really challenging. But I think because it is so difficult to prosecute rapists, because the burden is so high, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and because many, many states require that there be evidence of force in order for rape to be proven to that standard, there has to be evidence that the victim resisted or something. Because that standard is so high and there are so many reasons for rape victims to not resist and there are mm. so many you know forms of force that are not physical mm -hmm. we can't demand that everyone who experiences sexual assault report their abuser because mm -hmm. most of them haven't left enough evidence most of them right. will be acquitted and the trauma of having to go through a trial is way more than we can demand of rape survivors mm -hmm. um, mm. <laughs> and it's just it's such a challenge because there are ways that the law can be reformed, but figuring out a way to reform the law that won't cause much, you know, many more innocent people to suffer is, um, it's really difficult. It's really hard. But I think that, I don't know, the takeaway is just if someone hasn't reported their, their, their abuser, if somebody won't even name them, it's not, it's no one else's place to tell them that it didn't happen or that they're a right. bad victim for, for not reporting, uh, for not trying to prevent their rapist from raping somebody else down the line. That's not the victim's job. Like, people who have survived sexual assault, their primary duty is to themselves and to, to getting past it. And that's enough work. And I think on that, on that note, I just wanted to put in here quickly before um, we wrap up that the one thing that is clear with all of these uh, Me Too stories is that there are a lot of us mm -hmm. and there are also a lot of resources, call lines, support lines, and also, you know, maybe reach out to friends and have this be a conversation that you can have among friends that you trust just to gain some sort of support network surrounding these issues mm -hmm. because it's emotionally draining as Lindsay was talking about and I think that with the sheer number of us that have experienced this like we you know I guess the silver lining is we can we can form solidarity for one another if nothing else if mm -hmm. we if we can expect that the status quo will continue to remain then we we can maybe form these community settings these 
DIY settings and support groups uh, for each other in these in these ways. Mm-hmm. I think we need to destigmatize being a victim of assault. You know, I think right. we need to take away some of the shame. And I know, you know, I've certainly felt that like, I'm so stupid, I should have known better, I should have done something to stop this, or there's a lot of shame. And I think that's part of the benefit we can provide to each other too, is even just to have somebody say, oh no, I can completely understand how you would be in that situation. Or I've been in similar situations, luckily it just never went as bad for me. I think kind of um, that sort of support is really important. Yeah, just be there for each other. Yeah. yeah. As Asada Shakur says, we must love each other and support each other. Bless. Yes. She is the best. <laughs> She's the best. Um, okay. I think with that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, as always, you can get at us on the interwebs, Twitter, and Instagram at Season of the Bee. We're also on Facebook. We also now have a website. Shout out to Hope, seasonofthebee.com. You can also email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Our musicians this week emailed us their song, and that's why we're playing them. So we're super stoked to have y'all send us your music. Next week, we're going to have a super awesome episode on women in art with special guests Mackenzie Chin and Van Tran Nguyen. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, also, don't forget to review us on iTunes. Yes. yes. Rate, review, subscribe. And give us your money on Patreon, please. <laughs> yes. Give us your money. <laughs> and if all else fails, just send one of us a carrier owl. Yes. <gasps> yes. Also, <laughs> my Amber is not on this show. It's because it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Amber. Happy birthday. Yeah. All right. Love you guys. Love you guys. Love you, bye. Bitch.